Greetings and welcome. If you're listening, please follow. And if you're watching, subscribe. In either case, please like and comment. This is Dan Riley taking you on an odyssey into oratory. Just the other day, I saw a listing for a new movie in the theaters that caught my attention. The Tender Bar. I thought, if my local theater's open, I just might go see it. You see, I read lots of books, and by a large margin, the memoir is my favorite type. And one of my favorites in this genre is J.R. Moringer's The Tender Bar. It's his story, the story of a young boy longing for relationship with his absentee father. And sitting right at the center of Moringer's world is a New York saloon. Milestones, rites of passage, and the myriad of other ways boys mark time all include his neighborhood bar. Even long after he has entered adulthood and moved out of the state, he is lured back, time and time again, as his romance with a bar named Dickens endures a lifetime. As one who hails from a northeastern Irish family, where the bar culture reigns supreme, of course I was drawn to the story. Now, speaking of memoirs and Irish families, while I liked his older brothers, I've never been a big fan of Teddy Kennedy's. But still, I read his posthumously released memoir, True Compass. Unfortunately, memoirs from modern-day politicians are little more than self-serving fiction, and as us Irish say, full of malarkey. While I don't count Teddy's book among my favorites, there was one event from that book, however, that did strike a chord with me. Kennedy recalled a stern conversation his father had with him at a fairly young age. After the umpteenth time the youngster found himself in some sort of trouble, Kennedy's father said to him something to the effect, you can either have a serious life or a not-so-serious life. It's time to choose. The younger Kennedy claims that marked a big turning point in his life. Well, I'm not sure about any turning point, but, but Ted Kennedy sure deserves a generosity of spirit given all that he'd been through in his life. I was more focused, however, with the elder Kennedy's admonition. It made me stop and think. For his son to recall a specific conversation verbatim some 20 years after the fact, turning point or not, it had a tremendous influence on his life. And I don't know a parent who wouldn't agree up front, sure, I'll take a 60-year shelf life on the advice I give my kid. But there's another memoir, other than Mooringer's and Kennedy's, that I want to focus on today. As I've said before, I'm a pack rat when it comes to collecting ideas, thoughts, articles, books I want to read, essays, and the like. I've got several files inches thick of scribblings on napkins, backs of envelopes, and scores and scores of my thoughts scratched across the back of corporate memos. Who would ever thought the flip side of those corporate memos would be more important than the front side? And they were a great source for clean paper, too. Going through such files recently, I came across a short PDF book, Gift from the Sea, by Anne Marl Lindbergh. I recall reading it decades ago and only remember it as a Theruvian-type collection of essays that she wrote 
while vacationing by herself on some small Florida island. I wasn't sure why I saved it. So I reread it, and now I know why I saved it. I'm not a writer. Even if I were a writer, I couldn't write like she does. Her book comes from a uniquely feminine perspective. And by her own admission, the book was written expressly for women. But this man found it well worth saving. First, a little about her. She was born in 1906 and married pioneer aviator Charles Lindbergh. She was the mother of six children. Her father was a United States ambassador to Mexico and a United States senator from the state of New Jersey. She was a college graduate, which was rare for women of her time. Also, the first woman ever to receive a United States glider pilot license. She was a leading and inspirational figure, to be sure, in both the green and women's movement of her time. Her book, Gift from the Sea, was among the best-selling non-fiction books in the late 1950s. In her book, she uses the names of seashells and a little biography of their inhabitants to set the tone for each chapter. The first thing that struck me was her lamenting how empty and meaningless life often was for people in her world relative to her mother's generation. Modern life had succumbed to materialism, she claimed. (laughs) Say what? The book was written before I was born. Only 2% of homes had automatic dishwashers or electric can openers. There was no internet, no cell phone, no portable music, no malls. Starbucks wasn't even heard of. No DoorDash. And during Mrs. Lindbergh's time, most women were still hanging their laundry out on a clothesline. Materialism, they hadn't seen anything yet. Henry David Throw made the same observation when he moved to Walden's Pond a hundred years earlier. My dad made similar references to me when comparing his father's world to mine. I make the same observations to my kids. With this inexorable march we humans are making into more and more complexity among mind-bending technological advances, could it be that an equal part of us at the same time yearns for more simplicity? Could this yearning be built into the human psyche? It seems with each successive generation, the wholesome fun or artistic pursuits enjoyed by previous generations come to be representations of or how to best capture this notion of a bygone simplicity. Playing chess, checkers, or backgammon behind the barn. God, I wish I'd done more of that. Or spending youthful summers at grandma's playing hopscotch, reading Hans Christian Andersen under the big oak tree, then off to see a local play at night. Now that was living. Fishing, flying kites, and skipping stones with buddies on the water. Then just sitting back on the riverbank, letting time go lightly, chewing on a twig. Irrespective of the generation, the simplicity yearned for invariably includes interactions with other people, whether they be family or friends. And here's another constant. The halcyon days of yours always happen while immersed in the majestic beauties of nature, under the spacious skies on the prairies, watching the river run, 
or gifts from the sea. We all read books for different reasons. Some are in constant pursuit of knowledge. They love to feed their intellect. Others like Stephen King type books. They want to be scared to death. For me, it starts with curiosity. I initially pick up a book because something about the book, the author, something I heard or read made me curious. But after the fact, how I determine if the book will be among my favorites is, did it make me wonder? That's the emotion I like triggered. The psychologists tell us wonder is one of the more complicated emotions, and they usually divide it into two types. Number one, awe, a feeling approaching ecstasy, a transcendent moment. The second branch is what they call Socratic wonder, meaning a philosophical inquiry as to how and why life unfolds as it does. This book touched me on both accounts. Many people have a faint recollection of the name Lindbergh unrelated to aviation. There's a good reason for that. Back in March of 1932, Charles and Anne Lindbergh's oldest son, who was 20 months old at the time, was kidnapped and held for ransom. Over the following nine weeks, the Lindberghs went through hell. The obvious emotional torture, the negotiations dealing with law enforcement, and the intense press scrutiny. After all, Anne Lindbergh was the daughter of a United States senator, married to a famed, high-profile and decorated pilot, and in her own right was enjoying fame as the first woman to get a glider pilot's license. On May 12th of that same year, a truck driver looking to relieve himself in a grove of trees about five miles from the Lindbergh's home found their baby, dead and decomposing. His skull had been fractured. All the way up until the time of the O.J. Simpson murders, the Lindbergh kidnapping and murder had been considered the crime of the century, not just nationally, but internationally. Following the murder, the press scrutiny only intensified. The family had to endure the trial, conviction, and execution of their child's murderer. Given all the attention from a frenzied press, the Lindberghs left the country, first to England, then to a little island in France. As they began to put their lives back together, they would be hounded one more time by an unrelenting press. Their political views on Germany and American isolationism just prior to World War II were wholly inconsistent with the consensus views of the time. The press insisted on reminding the world of that fact. Around 1940, Lindbergh moved back to the country and began writing books on global politics and the war. One of the books she published, The Wave of the Future, A Confession of Faith, became a number one bestseller for nonfiction in 1940. But it also landed her the title of an American Nazi, a fascist, an appeaser. After the war years, her writing became less political and more philosophical, culminating with Gift from the Sea in 1955. Given all that Anne Merle Lindbergh had been through, the unspeakable pain of having a child kidnapped and murdered, the years of relentless scrutiny from the press, first 
over her lost child, then pummeling her for her political views. With all that, as old man Kennedy admonished his son to do, Lindbergh, when she had so many other options given her station in life, decided to live a serious life. It's hard to fathom how she could have written such an insightful, touching, and anger-free philosophical musing about daily life by the sea and the gifts therein. I'm glad I saved that PDF. It makes me wonder. For my part, that's all there is today. Please follow or subscribe, like, and comment. This is Dan Riley taking you on an odyssey into orbit. Until next time, blow off those bones, sail away from the sea, catch the trade winds. We're on the move.